welcome to the Nerd Party. Welcome to Great Shot Kid, the Nerd Party's Star Wars podcast that focuses on the technical and thematic inspirations of Star Wars creators. I'm John. And I'm Mike. And we are this week going to continue looking at shots that embody the Star Wars aesthetic. But before we get into that, just want to remind everybody you can go to the nerdparty.com slash contact, look up Great Shot Kid and drop us a line. You can also find us at Join Nerd Party. And that's the network account over on Twitter. You can find us at facebook.com slash the nerd party. And we're the nerd party over on Instagram. And so those are all of the official ways to reach out to Great Shot Kid. So let's dive into it. We delayed uh, so that we could do that discussion we had last time about Blade Runner 2049 and The Force Awakens and their approach to sequels. And I am actually very excited to get into this because we find ourselves in the territory of The Force Awakens again right off the bat. Because we're looking at shots, single shots, that embody the Star Wars aesthetic, showing either how it's evolved or how it stayed the same, or whatever kind of read we can get into that. So, knowing your love of the look of the of the Force Awakens, Mike, I'm very intrigued to know what your shot choice is for the one that embodies the Star Wars aesthetic and what it comes to mean when Episode Seven is released. Yeah, it's one of the very first shots that we ever saw, and it really sort of answered the question to me of like, what's this thing going to be like? You know, you hear J.J. Abrams is directing Star Wars, but at the same time, you know what Star Wars is and what it looks like. And you think like, how are those things going? Because as much as people say, oh, the Star Trek movies, they're basically just Star Wars movies. You know, they look like Star Wars, whatever, blah, blah, blah. They don't. You know, I mean, maybe thematically they are or whatever, but in terms of visuals, they do not look at all like a Star Wars movie. So That is true. You, you know, the question is, like, how how is he going to find that balance? And we've seen him do things like that, like with Super 8, you know, very much looking like a 70s Spielberg movie, you know, that kind of thing. But I was like, how is it going to manifest itself? How is his style going to manifest itself in Star Wars, you know, in the world of Star Wars? And, I mean, no shot to me really demonstrates that as much as that shot of the Falcon when it's flying on, you know, Jakku yeah. or whatever. Because it's like, this is Star Wars, that's the Millennium Falcon, and yet it's very much sort of the J.J. like shaky camera, which everyone, you know, is annoyed by or whatever. But it's totally appropriate to the style and everything, and it really does feel like J.J. Abrams sort of like exercising the restraint and the rules established by, you know, the original trilogy, but, you know, fitting his style into those boundaries. And, yeah, that's that shot to me more than anything sort of signals that. Interesting. I, uh, I'm, I'm actually surprised you didn't go with a different shot. I can completely, I'm down with what you're saying. I totally understand what you're saying. Um, I actually had, uh, I guess, uh, in my mind's eye, uh, a really interesting reaction while you were talking about that, because that is something that, uh, you know, I think we've probably discussed at some point in the distant past or whatever, but that is 
one of the cooler things about that Falcon flight sequence, you know, when we saw in that first teaser trailer, especially, was you're right, the camera movement, everything indicates J.J. Abrams is in Star Wars, but the way it comes together says Star Wars. It, like, you could even sub out the Millennium Falcon for another ship, and it still looks right. It still fits into that greater narrative. So I, 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 can, I can definitely see that. I wind up with a shot that I think we saw in the second trailer, but definitely saw before the film was released, that jumped out at me as this film was going to fit into the aesthetic uh, and that was the assembled troops on the parade ground as Hux is giving his speech because it was very evocative of what Lucas was trying to evoke with shots like the Emperor's shuttle landing of uh, Triumph of the Will and and that sort of you know Nazi connotation, which obviously with the uniforms and the use of the term stormtroopers, all of that stuff we got drilled into us and we know that it's there. But the way that those shots looked really worked and then but if I were to choose one from the final film instead of relying on that one establishing shot it's actually the shot the camera is tilted a bit and it's when the troopers salute Hux at the end of his speech is really really Star Wars but it it's tweaked like you're saying with the Falcon it's tweaked a little bit I can tell somebody else is sitting behind that camera but they're respecting the boundaries that they're supposed to be within uh, in terms of a Star Wars film. But so long as we're talking about Force Awakens, I got to ask you, while we're talking about the look of it, did you find this to be, because, you know, Empire looks great. I, I think all of them look great beforehand. Do you think that this film did enough to set itself apart, or was it trying too hard to ape a look as opposed to create its own look. I know where I stand on it. Where do you stand on it? No, I think it did a great job of both. You know, I mean, as a episode, right, it does need to follow a certain pattern, you know, in order to fit, you know, this aesthetic which is established in these other movies. But I think it definitely stands apart I think a lot of that has to do with like the lighting and stuff and, and the use of color, which is something which I think is kind of unique to all of the individual movies. And I mean, in, in that sense, I think it looks more like episode five than anything else. But, and, and I think episode five, I don't know. I, I, I think that one probably looks the best, although I really, really love the way that Force Awakens looks too. It's kind of a toss up for me. But yeah, no, I think it does a really good job of of balancing those two things. That's interesting because as much as I've knocked Jedi uh, for the outdoor scenes and the way that they are lit, um, I actually think that the indoor scenes are uh, some of the most beautiful, especially Luke. Like there, there's, um, you know, if we're talking about visual styles lining up, Luke underneath the stairs when half of his face is gray and the other half is that blue visually showing he's right on the edge of the darkness and everything. And then there's a, a specific uh, shot of Han in the Falcon when he turns around and says, yeah, I knew him where the lighting is very similar that, and it, you know, I mean, I mean, it's, it's coincidental. It's the, the, the lighting was determined by the scenes and everything. They, I don't think they were trying to evoke Luke under the stairs or anything like that, but it, it actually 
shows how it's it's in its DNA, uh, as it were. So, okay. So we've got our shots for The Force Awakens, which brings us inevitably to Rogue One. If you were to pick a shot from Rogue One, I'm very interested where you go with it and why. Yeah, this was hard. It was hard to pick like a single shot, you know, because I have like an idea of of the look of Rogue One and what I, I, I think, you know, kind of like sums it up. But if you were to ask me like for one shot, I don't know if I could find one single iconic shot that that sort of takes all of those elements into account, you know. But I mean the the I I guess the shot that I, I almost wanna sort of lean towards, although it's missing one of those elements, is the shot which is again in the trailer where she's on the transport and she's looking out the window and you see like a lens flare and everything and it's um, a very distinct lens flare which is indicative of this lens that they used, you know, this uh, ultra, like the 70 millimeter anamorphic thingy that they used and um, it's, the camera's like shaking, you know, like like the, there's some, some uh, you know, turbulence or whatever and the angle at which, you know, she shot, you know, it's, it's very like personal in a way that you don't usually find in the the other Star Wars movies. Most of the other Star Wars movies, it's much more of a sort of like a passive camera, I guess. And this one, it feels almost like it's really sort of like getting into her mind. You know what I mean? Whereas, you know, like, like Lucas has said, he's kind of wanted it to have sort of like a documentary feel in a sense, you know, in the other ones, which is weird. But because they don't look like that at all, like this almost looks more like a documentary than than those do. But mm. yeah, I I think that um, I mean I, I can't think of a specific shot, but I almost want to say like you know a handheld shot. Like I can I can visualize it, but I couldn't even tell you where exactly it is. But like a handheld shot of like stormtroopers, you know, walking through town or whatever, just because what the, the the photography in Rogue One kind of means to me and, and how it fits into the, the overall universe is shooting the familiar in a in a new way. You know, it's yeah. it's everything that we've I mean, even more than Force Awakens, I mean, it's everything that we've come to know and love from the original, you know, whether it's Darth Vader, whether it's the original Stormtroopers it's that world, you know, even the new stuff in there is designed to look like it's from 1977 Star Wars, you know, but it's being shot with this very modern style and this very modern camera and everything. And it has like a very unique look. And I think that the juxtaposition of those two things is really cool. I, I get I get what you're saying there. I I wind up for me I I, w- I was looking at it from the perspective of is there a shot that I would pick that would say to me Rogue Rogue One's entire purpose visually is to feel like it just fits like a puzzle piece into the original. To your point, you know everything should look like it's designed that it existed in that 1977 sort of aesthetic that that birthed it all and what jumps out is there's 
a shot, a couple of shots actually, in the beginning when uh, you know Galen's on his hideaway planet and Krennic shows up, and Krennic in his white and black and his black troopers are standing at the edge of this lush green grass with this desolate black beach behind them. So everything about them feels distant from, you know, it very much carries that visual connotation of the Empire doesn't belong in these natural environs, whereas Galen Erso is in Earth Tones and everybody's in Earth Tones and look like they belong, you know, in the surroundings. And then I wind up jumping over almost like a 180 to Krennic again is in the shot of Vader walking out of the steam when after he's put on his suit because everything about that environment speaks of the later, uh, to use your term, digital Star Wars that we got with, you know, okay, you've got the digital steam, you've got the digital chasm, you've got Vader enhanced, and you've got all of these things going on that are enhanced. And what I realized was given the production history of Rogue One that we all know, is that there, as I looked through these shots, there's very much a split personality about the look of the film. There are plenty of moments, like when they're on the planet in the beginning, or even when Vader is showing up out of the scene, where I look at it and I sort of settle in and I say, okay, this is this is how this film is working visually. But then there are discordant notes throughout it where it just doesn't seem to have a personality to the shots. And those those almost jump out at me as you know to sort of like make some sort of commentary about its, you know, the, what's known about its production history. But I you know, I I would have to if I have to settle on one, it's of Krennic and his death troopers standing in the green grass uh in the opening of it when they go to confront Galen Urso. That's just sort of where I end up. Damn. So we were considering talking about any revealed shots from The Last Jedi so far. However, uh, Mike is still on his trailer-free life. Uh, Sort of envy him on that. And he's only seen the trailers since uh, April is when you saw the first trailer, right? Yeah, I saw the first trailer at Celebration when Ryan Johnson revealed it and was like, you guys want to see the trailer? I'm like, yeah. And I watched it and he's like, let's watch it again. And I'm like, yeah. And I've never <laughs> and then seen you it came, Then you came to your senses afterward. Yeah. I got caught uh, up in the moment. I'm going to say that I actually have um, a shot from the most recent trailer that jumps out at me as part of the Star Wars aesthetic. But what I would encourage people to do is to go ahead and reach out to the show or you know, reach out to me personally because I don't want to spoil it for Mike. I will let you know online which shot I think truly speaks Star Wars to me when I see it uh, in the Last Jedi trailer. So we've discussed the Star Wars aesthetic, so that brings us to our weekly book club uh, where we are going through Splinter of the Mind's Eye a chapter at a time. And this week brings us to chapter four of Splinter of the Mind's Eye. Uh, Mike, you want to give everybody a refresher as to what got us up to this point? Luke and Leia crash landed on a planet, uh, which is controlled by Imperials, and now they're desperately trying to get off the planet. They met up with uh, a woman who seems to have force powers and who tells them about the Kyber crystal, and she's got like a shard from it, and she's trying to, you know, get 
Luke to take her, I think, take her off the planet with it? Or does she not care about herself? I don't no, know. she's trying to get them off the planet if they agree to help her find the the, the stone, big, the kyber the big crystal. One. Okay, yeah. right. So she's just got the shard, right, yeah. So they're they're, you know, doing their thing and they get in this chapter, they get captured by the Imperials, Luke and Leia do, and uh taken to the captain, governor, whatever. Yeah, the supervisor captain. Yeah. And you know, they're trying to basically talk their way out of getting thrown into jail or killed or whatever is going to happen to them. And because they don't have any credentials or anything like that. And, you know, Luke tries to kind of trick this guy to say, like, whatever you do, don't send us to this planet because they'll, you know, kill us. And the guy's like, well, you know, I might have to do that, might not. But this is one thing which I'm interested in. You know, you're you apparently have like this uh, this crystal on you. Or, so tell me about that. You know, that kind of thing. And then that's where the chapter ends because Luke's freaking out. Yeah, you know, the, it, what's interesting about this chapter is it very much has, it, it opens with uh, Leia and Luke having their little mud fight. It has this scene where these other miners come in and it very much has this vibe of the the 50s toughs, the the gang sort of thing that would have informed Lucas's childhood about it. You know, they come over and get out of the way, pip squeak. We we got business with the girl, and it ha- it ha- it really does. It has that sort of like fifties biker gang sort of feel to it, or car gang or whatever, uh, which I found pretty interesting because um, it it really just spoke I, like it just felt like it fit with where Lucas's influences uh, came from, but. Um, Actually, when you were mentioning how we got there and, and meeting Hala back in Chapter 3, what I realized I didn't mention last time was we, over time, became so rigid with our interpretation of Jedi and Sith that even here, in the very beginning of things, is an indication that there were people who were sensitive to the force who didn't follow those disciplines. And so there there's Hala there. So there's already expressed this idea that you didn't need to belong to one of these orders in order to commune with the force. So it's just interesting to see that show up so early, but uh, what, I mean, what did you think of the captain supervisor? Like, was he sufficiently villainous for you? Was he over the top? What, you know, what kind of impression did you get? I mean, I kind of felt like it was over the top, you know, I mean, I, I saw what they were going for or whatever, and I mean, it worked for the scene. I don't necessarily know that I'd want to read an entire book with this guy, but, you know, it. it I thought it worked for, for what they were trying to do. I, I thought he was too brutal for a Star Wars story. Yeah. Because at one point, he jams a rod into a guy's eye and, you know, partially blinds him for his insolence. And makes this joke. He says, oh, if he wants his eye, it's recorded here on this data disc. And it's like, that that seems a little much. Like, they're always into the cartoony super villainy in, uh, in Star Wars. They're not into this sort of like vicious psycho killer sort of brutality. It's a little unsettling. Yeah, in general, I think, you know, and I don't know whether part of it is because of the time or part of it is because they haven't really established a overall tone for Star Wars yet or whatever, but... You know, these early chapters, there does seem to be a lot more of that sort of brutality and 
you know, the way that they're, they're treating, um, you know, Luke and Leia, especially Leia, you know, and the sort of like, you know, misogynistic, you know, stuff. It's, it's weird. It's, it doesn't feel like Star Wars, but yeah. Um, you know, I, I think that that might be more, well, partially because of the time, but also partially because, you know, even though we do have one movie, is that enough to establish a baseline for this universe, you know, which is very, very large? I don't know. I don't know. I, I tend to subscribe to the idea that if they're setting up this guy, and the the guy I got shades of, actually, even though it came about much, much later, was Ray Fiennes' character in Schindler's List was mm-hmm. what this guy reminded me of. Uh, that that sort of brutal camp director where, you know, th- there's a line. He kicked her in the spine, but not hard enough to paralyze. It's like, whoa, yeah, that's that's pretty hard, you know. Wow. Um, so you, I, I guess, I guess this is where it really because when we talked about the the guy in chapter three, it was. Oh, he's just this sort of ineffectual bureaucrat who's just sort of half interested in what he's doing. But then we have this guy here who's flat out, you know, really awful Nazi guy. And it's, you know, I I, I guess it's just jarring to go from those two extremes uh, and find ourselves there. But I will say at the very least, it intrigued me because there's got to be a reason they're setting him up to be so brutal. Uh, so I wonder what that payoff is going to be. Yeah, that's no, true. Yeah. So uh, that's chapter four uh, of Splinter of the Mind's Eye, and we've uh, we've enjoyed reading it so far. It's, it's actually, you know, it really is interesting. It it, it is a time capsule uh, for a lot of for a lot of things. Um, but if you want to reach out to us uh, and discuss with us. Splinter of the Mind's Eye or anything else we've talked about on this week's show, uh, you know how to reach us over on the nerdparty.com slash contact and our different social network locations. Mike, if people want to reach out to you, where can they reach you? You can find me on uh, Twitter at Mumbles3K, and you can also find me on my website, commentarytrackstars.com, doing a show called Commentary Trackstars. And you can find me on trek.fm doing a show called the edge and another show called stage nine with you that's right i'm also on stage nine over on trek.fm with you you can also find me back here on the nerd party co-hosting aggressive negotiations with matthew rushing and you can find me co-hosting words with nerds with my pal craig out there in the ether and find me as kessel junkie on your social network of choice So thanks for joining us this time on Great Shot Kid, and we will see you next time. Join the revolution. Join the nerd party.